Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. I am excited to hear what you guys think about today's episode. I think you're going to like it. Nate and I interview Will Z out of Portland, Maine, and his story ranges from the alcoholic side, just drinking in bars, to shooting heroin and being homeless in Salt Lake City, to squatting in buildings and doing heroin in Chicago and like really high crime areas and this wild hustle that I've never heard of that he shares, probably the one hustle I think I've never heard of and I wish that I had thought of this. But what I love about his story in particular is his recovery journey. And he'd been in and out of 12 step for years and he landed in this little rehab and it was like a step boot camp, like a 12 step boot camp. And they walked him through the steps in a way that was subtle to the point where he didn't even realize he was like taking a first step, but very clear and logical. And that's what I did. I used a pen and paper. I didn't do it like he did. I I wrote it out with my sponsor, but we did it in a way and she explained it in a way where it just made sense and it made sense in this very freeing way. And I'd always thought of the 12 steps as something that was just gonna like limit my ability to like have fun in life. And the way that I came to understand the 12 steps was that it was the exact opposite of that. And the 12 steps were designed for living that would change my life for the better at the time and continue to do so now. And he met these men and had a lineage of sponsorship that sponsored in this very certain way that really worked for him. And he enjoys sharing it with other people. You can hear in his voice that he's really passionate about sharing this message. So as always, NodPod, please let me know what you think of the show and we will see you next week. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Chasing Heroin. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Janine. I'm an addict, alcoholic, in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. Hey, guys, yeah, welcome back. My name is Arkin Nate. My recovery date is December 3rd, 2022. Yes. yes. And we have, and I've never picked a guest this way, but I'm excited about it. So I don't know how many of you guys are Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Young fans. Any of my younger fans are probably like, who? It's fine. Google it. But David Crosby died recently and is a legendary, legendary musician. And somebody reached out and was like, oh, I got a story. It might work. And his profile pick was David Crosby. And I was like, boom, that's it. We've got to get this guy on. So I've got Will with us today. Will Z from Maine. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Of course. So we can just jump right in. Why don't you give us a little background about who you are, where you're from, and how you got started using drinking whatever. I'm 53 years old. I'm from New York City. I've been in Maine for just shy of 30 years. Came from a great family. Dad was a Wall Street banker. Older brother and sister who were twins. Younger brother, they're four years older than me. Younger brother, nine years younger than me. My older brother and sister were deadheads. Kind of what led me to pot and alcohol and just, you know, the I lived in Connecticut. People drank <laughs> and partied and it was, I, I started smoking weed and drinking alcohol to be cool and fun and have fun in junior high school and high school and prep school. And just like any normal kid, I speak and rehabs and detox and stuff a lot. And it's so funny, like the background of how you grew up is just so pathetically useless in the grand scheme of what you and I are doing, right? Like you could be like the worst trailer trash abused. Mom was a hooker crackhead versus like you could be like a Beverly Hills 90210 kid, right? We're just all the same when it comes to this drug and alcohol problem, you know? But I did come from a very normal and very loving um, family. 
I think that's an interesting point because I feel the same way. So I was raised in like this great family. And I think that that's important to point out because I think the stereotype is that like, oh, something has happened. But when we come from a family and like a healthy background where we were loved, I think it lends more weight to the addiction as a disease model, right? I agree. Which is to me, there's just, there's so much evidence to suggest that, right? Also, maybe the nice upbringing that I had is why, maybe partially why I've been able to recover through the steps and not need trauma counseling or PTSD, this and that. And you know what? I mean, that's a point. I mean, that's a good, that might be a really good point I mean, because I recovered through the steps, yeah. which is I'm, why I'm always like, oh, the steps. But I also had this great upbringing. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> well, my upbringing wasn't so good, so I had to do yeah, I had to do some EMDR and therapy. And you did extra work. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but I I think that's the point. Yeah, I mean, there's no parallel way to recover. You know, what I mean? right? It's not. It's not. I think a lot of people they, they think that just because like they covered this way that you should be able. You know, it's yeah. like that's not that's yeah. not realistic. You know what I mean? Right. And it's not even fair to say. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I like that. So, at what age for you did things start getting like more out of control, and you started thinking, oh, maybe I need to get sober? It got out of control long before I started thinking, oh, maybe I need to get sober. (laughs) I mean, I I remember being in prep school in Vermont and my like dorm parent teacher guy overheard some conversations through the walls because he lived like in the other side of this building. And he woke me and my five buddies up at like two o'clock in the morning and had like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of hard alcohol and beer laid out on the floor that he had grabbed like from our secret stash under the stairs. And because he had overheard a conversation through the wall and couldn't really pin anything on us, he technically couldn't get us in trouble with the school. So what he did was he said, in exchange for me not trying to get you in trouble with the school, I want you to sit with this substance abuse counselor and just talk to him. And so we all did that. And we were able to tell this guy the truth with no school ramifications. And I mean, you know, at 14 and 15 years old, I was telling this guy alcohol stories where he was like, yeah, dude, you have a problem with alcohol. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that was a, that was a good suggestion though, from the dorm dude that suggested that. I mean, that was a nicer way of dealing with it. I feel like. He was good at his job. It was a prep school in Vermont called Vermont Academy. And I went there for um, two, my freshman, sophomore year. Then I went to a public high school in Connecticut for a year. And then my family moved to London, England. Oh, wow. My parents were like, hey, we're going to London. We found this nice school for you. It's in the country. You get to wear a tie. And I was like, fuck <laughs> that. I'm not going to London. And I changed my mind at the last minute and I went. And I repeated my junior year because my grades had really sucked my first time around. I knew I wanted to go to college. So I did junior and senior year in London. And it just, you know, there I was a Monday through Friday boarder at boarding school. and But I was in a kind of school where I was able to walk down the street and go to the pub after school. I have beers with my teachers at 18 years old. And on weekends, Friday and Saturday, my God-given right, hammered in London. Because in London, it's like no one drives. You're taking cabs, buses, the tube. Parents are like, they know it's a very safe city. This was 1988. And so my drinking probably escalated there. And then I got to college. I went to college in the northern suburb of Chicago. And I just, at that point, I'm now I'm just drinking like a pig. Okay. Like just, I'm, a, I'm an absolute alcoholic. I have no idea. I don't have any consequences to my drinking other than graduating college with 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, no OUIs or anything like that. And then um, after college, I went to work at the Chicago Board of Trade. And I was a runner. And I made $3 an hour. 
and I couldn't really afford to live anywhere in Chicago. So I kicked in the door of an abandoned building and I stole my electricity and my water and I lived in it for two years. Holy shit. <laughs> just squatting in a building. That's but as good. like, not as a meth addict, just as a guy working a job. Well, I never did meth. Uh, I mean, I've done it, but right. I was never a meth addict. So what happened to me there, this is kind of a weird thing, but when I was growing up, there was a lady that was my playground attendant when I was like a little kid. And she introduced me to heroin when I was a teenager. She's long since died. But I had tried it a few times. And when I was in Chicago, I like lived on a friend's couch for like three months while working at the Board of Trade because I was making literally like $3.75 an hour. Okay. And I knew I wanted to be in Wicker Park, which is like this hip, slick and cool Northwest neighborhood. It's sort of like the Greenwich Village used to be in New York. Okay. And it was becoming hipster and coffee shops and poetry reading rooms. And I knew that was a fun neighborhood, but I could not afford it. So I found this abandoned building and I kicked in the door and I changed the locks and I stole my electricity. And the Latin kings that lived all around me thought that I had bought it because there's, there's no way they would have let me stay there. And like my second day living there, I asked this kid on the street if he could, if he knew where I could cop some dope. Oh. And he brought me to a door and he showed me this buzzer. And he said, that's the buzzer. And I buzzed the buzzer and I was buzzed upstairs and I bought a bundle of dope off this guy, did it over the next 24 hours. And the next day, I couldn't remember what buzzer it was, <laughs> but the kid was still there again. And he made me give him 10 bucks <laughs> to show me a second time which buzzer to hit. And I buzzed and I got another bundle of dope. And I used from that buzzer every single day for two years. Oh, wow. Snorting. Every single day, the guy used to eventually run. And it was funny. He used to come to my house. He would ride his bike to my house. And one day he came up the stairs with my dope. At this point now, I'm getting like three bundles a day because I, I have some customers, right? So I can use cheaper, right? And uh, he comes running up the stairs crying. And he's like, yo, Will, they stole my bike. And I'm like, who? He's like, the gang members on your street, man, they stole my bike. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, I know those guys, man. I'll, I'll talk to them, Timmy. I'll try to get your bike back. Timmy was Bobby's nephew. He was a runner, right? I'll try to get your bike back. So nothing ever came of it. I never got his bike back. But like three weeks later, he came to make a delivery to me and it was raining. <laughs> and he came running up my stairs crying. And he's like, yo, Will, he's like, they shot at oh, me shit. from on my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But they did not like this guy making deliveries. The gang members that like ran my corner did not like this guy from a different corner making these deliveries to me. So I used to have to meet him halfway. And what eventually happened was I knew I was in for some unpleasantness when I stopped using this stuff. Okay. But I had no idea to the extent it was going to be. So I decided to stop. And I was fine for like, you know, the deal, like 36 hours, I was fine. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, like, what is this? Right. <laughs> so I immediately called my man, got the connect and whatever. And I decided I had come to uh, Maine for my brother's wedding and I really liked Portland. And I was like, this is a cool town. You know, if I ever need to leave Chicago in a hurry, I'm just going to come here. Well, <laughs> like two months later, I need to leave Chicago in a hurry. <laughs> so I called and I had him meet me at the Busy Bee diner in Wicker Park, which was a Polish diner, a big cop hangout, actually. And I said, look, I'm leaving town. Okay. And I want to give you like three names and phone numbers. And I'm not going to say anything about these people's integrity. All I'm going to tell you is they're not cops. They're heroin users. And you can keep like 
three quarters of your business going that you had with me by just staying in touch with these three dudes. And he was like, oh, well, I know you're selling my stuff. It's cool. And I was like, well, you know, I'd like you to keep three quarters of your business going, Bobby. So I'm going to give you these three or four names and you can contact these people. And he's like, what do you want in return? I said, I want a hundred bags in oh, return. Oh, shit. For no money, just the you, phone numbers? I gave him three phone numbers or three or four phone numbers of my customers that were buying five to 10 bags a day off me, making me so I could do my 10 bags for nothing, right? Because I would like cut the bag, you know the deal, right? So he said, what do you want in exchange for these three or four phone numbers with this connect of customers? And I was like, I want a hundred bags on the cuff. Wow. And he went out to his Mustang and he wrapped a hundred bags up in a red bandana and handed it to me. Oh my God. And I sublet my abandoned house- <laughs> To a, to a guy I knew, <laughs> to a guy and a girlfriend. I took his girlfriend. I took six months of rent off of them. Oh, my God. Side note, they got a better deal than I did. Two years later, I was on my way through Chicago, and their little maroon Camry with gold emblems was still parked in front of 1435 North Levitt. <laughs> and they had they got for like, uh, I think I took $3,600 off there. They lived there for years. Oh, wow. With free electricity and water, yeah. right? So- Anyway, um, I went to my summer house in northern Michigan and I was going to kick. I was going to do like six bags a day for three days and five bags a day for five days and four bags a day. And I was going to wean myself off of heroin for the first time. So what happened? It did not work. <laughs> you tell me, Janine, what happened? <laughs> we all know what happened. Okay. I got to Michigan. I did the hundred bags of dope inside of like six days. Oh and then I was dope sick in a place where like... You couldn't buy heroin if your life depended on it, right? Northern Michigan. So I was sick for the first time. Oh my God. And if, as we know, most people, you and most people watching this know the first time is the worst. So I was sick for like a month or two. You know, I had substantial habit, cold turkey. And like, you know, I had to like close up the cottage and my dad was like, let's bring in the dock, put the sailboat away. But I was like, oh my God, I can't get <laughs> off the couch. I, you know, I had the worst flu ever, you know. And that was sort of the beginning and... You know, I moved to Portland and I took a job selling radio advertising, which is a great job for a drunk because I'm going to sell your bar $10,000 worth of radio. You're going to give me a check for five grand and a $5,000 bar bill, right? <laughs> so, uh, tab. So I did that and just sort of forgot about the drugs. And then I was back on the drugs and then the booze. And I just sort of back and forth, pot dealing, alcohol, and then heroin. And then oxys came on the scene and that sort of threw me for a loop. And in 1999, I went to the Karen Foundation. And I went to the Karen Foundation and I had this counselor named Brian. Brian had a tie that was too short <laughs> and a shirt that was a little too small. So the buttons were like, you know, <laughs> and Brian may or may not have had a drug or alcohol problem. He certainly didn't have anything I wanted. Yeah. So I finger painted my disease and wrote a trigger list and a goodbye letter. And, you know, I did 60 days at Karen Foundation and three weeks after I got out, I was in uh, Mountain View Hospital in Las Vegas having a, you know, a heroin overdose. Oh, I skipped a huge part. <laughs> I skipped probably the part that you really want to hear about was after I had lived in Portland for about a year and a half, I moved to Salt Lake City, Utah to be with some friends of mine. I drove through Chicago, saw my old guy, saw one of my old customers who I had given to my guy and got completely robbed by him. Oh no! Left Chicago and got to Boulder, Colorado with nothing. Hooked up with a friend of mine in Boulder from where I was in prep school in London she taught me how to inject. Oh, okay. Because all they had was the tar, right? And I had always done the powder. So I, that was my beginning of journey of IV drug use. And then I got to Salt Lake City and my friends promptly were like, we don't want anything to do with you. 
So I very quickly wound up living on the streets of Salt Lake City. Oh, wow. I lived, uh, and you, people that are like, Salt Lake City, the Mormons, like, no. <laughs> I wouldn't know a Mormon if I threw up on one. Like, Salt Lake City has an open-air drug market that is like Washington Square Park in New York City, except it's filled with, like, the most high-quality coke and heroin at rock-bottom prices you've ever seen in your life. I didn't know that. It's, is off the hook in Salt Lake City, or at least it was when I was there pre-Olympics. They did a documentary on like people in the church like smuggling dope in and out of Salt Lake City. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how accurate that was. Keep in mind, I was there pre-Olympics. Okay. But I will tell you that I'm very good with people. I mean, just like the gang in Chicago, man, I played my cards right with these dudes. They let me live in an abandoned house in their barrio. Okay. Pre-rare. So I was also, I really played my cards right with the guys in, on the streets of Salt Lake City. They were all cartel guys. I made light of a lot of stuff that people in my situation wouldn't, and they really grew to like me. And I could get a half eight ball of the best Coke you've ever seen in your life for 30 bucks. Oh, shit. And I could get a half gram of really good black tar heroin for 30 bucks, and I could get one of each for 50. And so I lived on the streets. I slept in abandoned cars and under highway overpasses and in jail a lot. Um, and I was there for like, uh, you know, a year and a half. And then I came back to Portland and again, just sort of put it behind me, just sort of switched over to bars and booze and just sort of put this like insane amount of speed, IV speedball use, just sort of put it in my rear view for like a year or three. Crazy. But you know, you asked me about some stories and some like outlandish horror stories and stuff. And so I can share a little bit about Salt Lake with you. Sure. And I do it for the reason that you and I talked about before the interview started, right? If I want to help somebody get better on this podcast, I can't be Brian from the Karen Foundation, right? I can't just be some lightweight that may or may not have a drug problem. Yeah. Like, so when I share in detoxes and rehabs and meetings, I try to gauge my listeners. And if like, if it's, people my age or young people. And I don't regale horror stories. I don't glorify drug use, but I'll usually say brief stuff like this. Like I have been arrested, booked in jail, released from said jail, re-arrested and rebooked in the same jail in the same day <laughs> on three different occasions. Oh my God. Three different times I've been let out and brought back in the same day. Okay. <laughs> I have flown around the country wearing clothes made out of Tyvek handcuffed to 250 other federal inmates on airplanes and buses and what we call diesel therapy, moving from federal prison to federal prison. Okay. My MO is when I use, I usually shoot drugs for 150 hours until yellow bugs are coming out of my face. And then I sleep for 25 hours and fucking get up and do it again. <laughs> right. So when people are like, you know, if I was to sit down with like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jerry Garcia and John Belushi and start getting high within an hour, they would all be like, dude, pick up your needles and your cookers and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like that's how bad I am. Blood, bloody rags all over the place. Like it's fucking disgusting. I am a disgusting, hopeless drug addict. Okay. And you know, it's ironic that I got recovered in AA because, and this helps me a little bit with my singleness of purpose. Like we talked about, I don't need to hear about your country club booze and how drug addicts aren't welcome. Fentanyl is killing people out there. But for me, it's important to keep my story for alcohol because, right, what's the one step we have to do perfectly? It's the first step, right? And I never had a first step problem around heroin or coke. People use this word partying, right? <laughs> what I was doing never even remotely resembled partying, okay? 
But booze was partying. Right. Booze was chicks, bars, parties, concerts, right? That's what I never wanted to give up. That's what I never wanted to admit I couldn't have a handle on. I don't never had a handle on IV speedballs. Fuck, nobody does, right? But at least I wasn't under this impression that I might. So when I finally got the opportunity to recover through a miraculous, unbelievably good lineage of sponsorship, it was all sort of focused on alcohol for that reason for me. Okay. So that worked for me. And, you know, Salt Lake was bad. I'm getting high with these like six guys in my own careful way. And a couple cruisers roll up on us. This is in a park. This is a one square block grass park called Pioneer Park in Salt Lake City, right? These cops roll up on us and they get us all up against this tree or against this wall. And they're searching us and they handcuff all of us, right? And one of the cops says to one of the other cops, unhandcuff Will. And the guy's like, why? He's like, just unhandcuff him. We're taking these other five guys in. We're not taking Will in. And the cop's like, why? The cop's like, uh, the nurse won't let him in the jail. And the other cop was like, what do you mean the nurse won't let him in? The jail? What are you talking about? We're, we, he's got all these needles on him. He's got his drugs. He's with these other guys. He's going to jail with the rest of them. And the guy's like, dude, take the handcuffs off him and let him go. And while you're at it, roll up his sleeve and take a look at his arms. I'm telling you right now, the nurse is not going to let him in the jail. Like literally they would bring me in jail with a van with five other guys. And the nurse would be like, oh, no, no, no. let me see it. Roll up your sleeve. No, not in my jail. You don't. She, my arms were so bad. She wouldn't let me in the jail. Like just abscesses? Like, You're gonna, whatever kind of, what's like that? Just abscesses and that kind of thing? Yeah, staff, everything. She's like, whatever it is you have all over you, okay. you're not bringing that in my jail. Okay. Like they literally wouldn't let me in the jail. And they'd be like, well, you know, your, your mom called looking for you, wondering if you were in jail. And I told her you were. And so she said, oh, good, I'll be all asleep. And I, all the way back from Maine, these cops would pick me up and they'd be like, why don't you go home? You've got this nice family. They're worried about you. And I just, I couldn't leave these drugs. I couldn't leave that park. I couldn't go to the Great Salt Lake. I couldn't go to Snowbird. I was just in the park. Everyone had a hustle, right? Some people were hookers. Some people were boosters. They would steal. Some people were burros. So they would hold the drugs for the cartel guys. And a burro holds coke in one pocket, heroin in the other takes a hand signal from a dealer, drops a bag on the ground, walks away from it. The customer pays the dealer and picks the bag up off the ground. And that way, the cartel guys never get caught holding anything. What I would do was I would, and I learned this because in, all through college, I was a limo driver in New York City. And so what I would do was I would go to the Salvation Army and I would tell them, I have a job interview. Can I please have a shower and a shave and some trousers and a collared shirt? And they would give it to me. And I would go to the Hilton Hotel. And I would wait in their lobby for the courtesy shuttle that would take me out to the airport. When I got to the airport, I would go to the place where all the limo, you know, when you go, when you get a limo, it's got like your name on it, Janine, yeah. limo drivers waiting for you with a sign. Well, all those dudes park their limos in the same place. Right. And I would go to that place and I would steal a limousine. And then I would take it to a different terminal at the airport and I would get in the taxi line. So in Salt Lake, you can call a limousine to take you into town for 50 bucks, or you can take a yellow cab for like 90. It's the weirdest thing. So I would get in the cab line. So it'd be like yellow cab, yellow cab, yellow cab, stretch limo, yellow cab, <laughs> yellow cab. And I would just pull up in these families and I'd be like, where are you going? They're like in town. I'd be like 70 bucks, jump in. And I would take them into town and I would turn around and go right back to the airport. And I would do this all day. Sometimes they would be like, I'd be like, where are you going? They'd be like snowbird. And I'm like, that's $275, jump in. And I would take them. This was my hustle. I did this like once a week. And when I was done with the limo, I would 
sell it to the same guys that I was going to give all my money to anyway, right? I'd be like a Scaliente and they went, we know it's hot. The steering column was broken <laughs> and I would sell them the limo, but then I'd have, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred bucks. And that, that could last me a long time. That might be the one hustle I've never heard of. I've never heard of hustle limo driving ever. I've heard of stealing shit from Home Depot, stealing shit from Walmart. I have never heard of hustling a fucking limo. I've never heard of this. So at what point do you finally stop? Like what leads you up to your last use? What's your sobriety date? I'm glad you asked me that. So uh, I went to federal prison for a couple of years. Oh, I'd like to back up for a second. I got sober in October of 2011. Okay. Up until then, I had put 30 days together twice. And I had been sitting on metal folding chairs in church basements for like over a decade. I'd been going to AANA for 10 years. And in that 10 years, I put 30 days together two times. So I went to prison. That didn't keep me sober. And then in 2010, I had this bump in my neck. And I thought it was a cyst. And this doctor at at Tufts took it out. And he was like, that was a lymph node. There was cancer in there. We got to find your cancer. So they did a PET scan and my left tonsil lit up and I had HPV related squamous cell carcinoma in my left tonsil. Oh, no. So the doctor's like, look, man, you got a long road ahead of you. You're going to have to have these surgeries, this radiation, this chemo. So I did. I had my tonsils out. I did seven weeks of surgery and radiation and they loaded me down with drugs. Like they were giving me like gallons of liquid oxy. They would give me like a two week supply of liquid oxy at once. So two days later, when I was out, <laughs> I'd be back for like another, <laughs> you laugh. It's so funny. I know you totally get it. But now there came a point when the doctors were like, okay, you've had enough. And I was like, no, I haven't. <laughs> so now I'm like mixing street drugs with the pharmaceutical scripts and stuff. And I'm back in Maine and I get pulled over for OUI, searched a bunch of drugs on me. I'm on bail conditions. And eventually the DEA kick in the door of actually, you know, it's so funny, this apartment I'm sitting oh, in. Oh, really? I'm over here today renovating, cleaning this apartment and renovating the one downstairs. And I just thought, you know, I'll do this interview from here. And it's so funny because I'm sitting in the, that is the door right there that the DEA kicked That's in insane. when I was in here with a bunch of guys from Lynn Mass and they took me to jail. So now I'm in jail and I've, I have an extensive rap sheet and I'm looking at like, I'm easily looking at a dime in state prison. Okay. Easily. And so I, my mother had been a detox nurse for a while and she called the detox. She used to work out and said, and said, I need to speak to Danny. Danny was this woman she worked with. And the people said, Danny's not here anymore. Danny went to work at this 12 step retreat where she got sober in New Hampshire. Here's her cell phone number. So mom calls Danny. Danny says, send him out here. So I put this house up for bail again. This is like the third time this house. When the, I mean, the cops have kicked in these doors so many fucking times. When the feds did it, I was like, asshole, I had the keys right here. I was handcuffed in front. I'm like, I've changed that lock so many times. But anyway, the district attorney was like, yeah, go ahead and cross the state line. Go to rehab. So I went to this 12-step retreat, and it was this little place called the Plymouth House. And it was owned by this multi-millionaire guy that had a company that was a, he made precision helicopter parts and he had gotten sober. And this was just a big, massive altruistic endeavor on his part. Okay. okay. So like all the profits from this thing were given to people who couldn't afford it and expanding the place. Well, it's since been bought by a big rehab company. Now they take insurance. Now they finger paint diseases and right trigger lists and all this horse yeah. shit that never helped anybody. But when I was there, it was four grand. They didn't take insurance and it was step camp period. Okay. It was AA step camp. You are coming here to learn and do the steps of alcoholic Anonymous. So I can, at this point, 
tell you about my step experience, yeah, if you'd like. I would love that. Okay. And how I actually wound up getting sober. So I go to this place and I meet this guy, Jay. And Jay says, and Jay is sitting with this other guy, Lenny, who Lenny is now my sponsor. And I want to preface this with this 12-step retreat was owned by this dude named Tom. And there was a guy in California named Don Pritz. Have you heard the name? No. Uh-uh. So Don Pritz is a well-known speaker who's since passed away. Okay. But back, I don't know, 20 years ago, Don Pritz was like, hey, AA has been watered down and it sucks. And the message is watered down and it's no good. And we need to bring AA back to its roots like the founders created it. And he did this from inside California State Prison. This guy was sending 25 cent money orders to make financial amends to people. And he passed this message along to a guy named Piers. Piers brought it east to the Plymouth House, passed it along to a guy named Aaron, who passed it along to hundreds of people, including myself. Okay. Okay. So Jay says, what have you been doing to stay sober? And I'm like, I've been trying, I don't know, dude, I've been trying not to drink alcohol and do drugs. And Jay and Lenny started laughing at me. And I was like, what the fuck are you laughing at? And they were like, dude, you can't try not to drink alcohol and do drugs. You're a drug addict and an alcoholic. And I was blown away. Honestly, Janine, at that point in my life, I honestly thought that AA was filled with people who went through life trying not to drink. I had been going to AA for 10 years, NA. Anytime someone said 90 days or I just got a year or whatever, I thought, holy shit, this poor fucking guy has been trying not to use drugs for a year. Or this poor lady has been trying not to drink for three years and she did it. I didn't know better. I thought we tried not to drink. And here's what the Plymouth House taught me. We most certainly do not try not to drink. Recovered alcoholics and drug addicts put little to no effort into not picking up drugs and alcohol. That's not to say that we don't put a shitload of effort into a bunch of other things that some people might see as very corny, but we don't try not to drink and use, not if we're recovered, okay? So when I was in high school and college, I took French. And the teachers always wanted to teach me about Louis XIV and Robespierre and all this history. And I'm like, I don't care about any of this shit. I just want to speak and understand this language, okay? And then I get to the Plymouth House and guess what? They're going to teach me about Bill Wilson and Ebby Thatcher and Roland Hazard and Carl Jung. And I'm like, fuck all that. I don't care. I don't care about these old stockbrokers that dress funny, talk funny. I just want to stop using and drinking. And even that wasn't true. I didn't even really want to stop using and drinking. I just wanted the consequences of my using and drinking to stop. Right. Okay. But what I learned at that point was I learned about the Oxford group. Okay. The Oxford group was started by a minister, a Christian minister, and it had nothing to do with drinking. It was a fellowship of men mostly, sorry, but it was, okay? And it was designed to help these men become better dads and better sons and better uncles and better employers and better employees and better people. That's all this was about. The Oxford group had nothing to do with alcohol. Come here, work these six steps and become a better man. So all these people joined and they did the six steps and they became better men. But here's the crazy part. Coincidentally, some of those men were hopeless alcoholics and they joined, yeah, to become better people. Maybe stopping drinking had something to do with it. But the real reason they did was because they knew they were shitbags and they wanted to become better people. And so they did the six steps and their drinking problem went away. It literally went away. They lost their desire to drink. Okay. 
And when I learned that, that blew me away. What I basically learned was the first people in AA were not in AA. They were in the Oxford group. I didn't know that. I know of the Oxford group, but I didn't know it wasn't for drinking. That is interesting. No, it had nothing to do with drinking. I've always said that I think the steps are like a design for living. And they obviously are because they weren't even started as something designed for drinking, which I didn't know. It had nothing to do with drinking. It was a byproduct of becoming a better people. It was an accident. It was serendipity. Okay. So while I'm learning this, I'm also talking to these like smart, charismatic, good-looking, young, recovered drug addicts who were the opposite of Brian at the Karen Foundation. Remember Brian with the tie that was too short and the funny shirt and who may or may not have a drinking problem? So these people are now taking me through the, through the big book. By the way, they took me through this thing called the doctor's opinion that I had never heard of. <laughs> Ten fucking years in church basements, I'd never heard of the doctor's opinion. Did no one tell me? Did I not want to hear? That's up for debate and probably not important. But I didn't know what it was. So they took me through the doctor's opinion and they took me through Bill's story and they told me about their experience and their yellow bugs and their disgusting stories of drug addiction. And they sold me on the fact that, yeah, they're just like me. These guys are hopeless, fucked up drug addicts and alcoholics too. Okay. And so they're doing, they did this thing called little big book. So it's me and like three other new guests at the Plymouth house and a dry erase board and a guy doing like a two hour group. So he'll take us through the doctor's opinion and he'll tell us a little bit about his IV Coke use and how he couldn't stop. And then he'd say, okay, now you tell me about this. And he'd ask us questions. So he comes to me and he says, well, give me an example of when you went out with the intention of just having like two drinks and that's not how things turned out. And I'm like, hmm, I think about it. And I think about it for like a minute. Okay. A minute doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're on the spot in little big book at the Plymouth house in front of the dry race board, like a minute is like an eternity. Right. And so I'm like, I got it. I can think of two examples. When I went down to the Brian Baru, that's our local pub, uh, Irish pub here in Portland. I went down the Brian Baru. I had two double vodkas and soda. I got in my car and I went home. I had a full liquor cabinet, bunch of weed. And I just had a fire in the fireplace or put on a movie and watched a movie and then went to bed without having more drinks. I get the smile on my face like, how's that, Jay? And he's like, well, that's not what I asked you. And I was like, what do you mean that's not what you asked me? He said, I asked you to give me examples of when your intention was to have a couple drinks and you wound up drinking everything until you couldn't drink anymore. And I got this like hot face of embarrassment, you know, the like hot stingy face of embarrassment. And all of a sudden it dawned on me every other time, right? right? With those, with the exception of those two times that I just thought of right then, every other time I drank, it was to oblivion. And I got these flashbacks. All of a sudden I'm in London. I'm at Punch and Judy's bar in Covent Garden and I'm sitting at this table and I moved the table away from the wall a little bit so I could barf a bunch of sangria behind it. And the room <laughs> is spinning and I got one foot down and I'm thinking, wow, I've had too much to drink. I should have some water, Right. <laughs> 10 minutes later, I'm like on the dance floor, I have a pint glass of vodka with some ice. And I'm like, boom, sk, boom, sk, boom, sk. and I'm like looking over at the table and the puke. And I'm like, wait, a I was just over there thinking I've had too much to drink. Right. Or then I would think like when I was a kid, I'm 13 years old. I'm watching like, I don't know, the fucking Brady Bunch. And I go to the fridge and my mom's white wine is in the door of the fridge. And I undo the cork and look, 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 look. And I go back to the TV and at the next commercial, I go to the fridge, but I'm telling myself, well, this is your last trip to that wine bottle. Two more big gulps and you're done, right? Back, next commercial, I'm back. Okay, this is it. This is the last trip to the fridge. And I would tell myself this. 
until the whole bottle of wine was gone. When I was 14, this is your last. Now I got to go down the wine cellar, get another bottle, open a drink half of that. So my mom's not like, what the fuck happened to my wine? Right. And so this stuff all came flashing back to me sitting right there in little big book. So do you know what that was? Uh, step one. <laughs> was step one. Yeah. That was step one. And I didn't even know it. I had just taken the first step. I didn't even know it. Okay. So then I'm doing this group with this guy, John. And John was, I actually talked to John today. John owns a rehab. I finance John's houses. We all have these great lives now. But John was in the Marines and John was stealing bulletproof vests from the Marines and pawning them for crack. Okay. This fucking guy was a legit crackhead. And he's doing a little big book with me one day and me and the, th- the same group of four people. They would do like the first four people. And it was called Little Big Book. We had bigger groups with 30 people, but this was LBB, right? And John says in Little Big Book one day, after he's got me convinced that he is really indeed a crackhead, he says, and I'll never forget this. He says, today, I never feel like being drunk or high. And I'm very rarely anxious or depressed. And that really stuck with me. That line, that guy has stuck with me like forever. Okay. And basically what that means is like, hey, this worked for him, right? This could work for me. Not would. Do not ever confuse could with would, right? You know, came to believe that a higher power could restore us to sanity, right? So basically at that point, I had just taken the second step and I didn't know it. I didn't know it because shortly thereafter, I was asked to take a third step, right? And the third step is basically a contract with God. It's a quid pro quo, basically. Okay. It's like, hey, God, bail me out of this, relieve me of this obsession. And uh, I will in turn pass this on through the way I live my life to other men that need help with addiction, right? And the way I sponsor guys now, it's like, I got good news and bad news. The good news is I'm not going to ask you to do anything that's not in that book, right? The bad news is I'm going to ask you to do everything that's in that book. And you're just going to sit here and talk to me on like five different occasions for an hour and a half each occasion. And at that point, it's time for you to start your fourth step. And you can let me know if you want to do this or not, or really even take a third step, right? So I took the third step and I said it. I said the prayer uh, verbatim from the book. It didn't have much meaning to me. And I'll get to that later. Okay. And then I was given my fourth step instructions. If I can give any newcomer a suggestion on your fourth step, Go into it blind. Take the suggestions of your sponsor on how to do it. Let your sponsor give you these columns of what this four-step is before you look ahead and see what the next part of your four-step is. Because if you do that, you could very easily cheat yourself out of your four-step experience. Okay? So I was given these instructions, first column, second column, third column, fourth column, fear, sex. I did it. I did it. I did the whole four-step. And now it was time for me to do my fifth step. Okay. And at the Plymouth House, they had these guests called monitors. And monitors were special guests that had done their 28 days there. And then they had applied for a job to work at the Plymouth House. They had been given this job and they're going to be there for another 90 days. And what a monitor does is searches bags, does laundry, does dishes, rakes leaves, and witnesses fifth steps for people who are in their first 28 days. Okay. Okay. So I chose this monitor named Ed to witness my fifth step. Ed was 15 years younger than me and 40 days more sober than me. Okay. So Ed took me into the chapel and I sat down with five notebooks of fourth step and I read him every written word. It took about four hours. And at the end of it, he was like, is that everything? And I said, yep. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yep. 
And it wasn't everything. Right. Right. Because I had something that I wasn't going to fucking tell Ed. Fuck Ed. Right. <laughs> I had something that, you know, you could say it doesn't really fit in my four step because it didn't have anything to do with resentment, fear or sex. OK, fine. It was sex. And I wasn't telling Ed. Okay? <laughs> I just wasn't. Fuck it. I was going to keep this one. All right. It was embarrassing. So I read him everything, and then he's, he gives me my instructions to do sex, step six and seven, okay? And if you follow the book, and you can call people on their bullshit, like one of the biggest bullshit lines I've ever heard is, do a step a year for 12 years. Well, that's a death sentence to this hopeless drug addict, yeah, no, but I can no. prove to you it doesn't work. Yeah. It says right in the book that the, the sixth step takes about an hour. It's an hour meditation. How the fuck do you turn that into a year, okay? And then the, sec the seventh step is a quick prayer. Okay. So it's 61 minutes, whatever, 60 and a half minutes. So I got to meditate this sixth step in this chapel, but I can't because all I have is this neon light going, you chicken shit, right? You just did 99.9% .9 of this work. And then you fucking chickened out. You can't meditate. You're shit. You're a chicken. You're not going to get better. Everyone at this place is going to get better, but you. So when we're finished with five, six, and seven. The book tells us that a lot of time the problem of the drink is gone. The feeling that the problem of the drink is gone often comes strongly. And what that means is when we're done with five, six, and seven, like all of a sudden we don't feel like being drunk, right? But that didn't happen for me. When I was done with five, six, and seven, all I got was the neon sign with you fucking chicken shit because I chickened out on something and I was never going to get better. Okay. Fortunately, I had applied for a job as a monitor, okay? And so when the guy that ran this place, he was kind of douchey. He always wore a sweaty sweater vest, drove a maroon sob, and he was never very friendly to people, which is your job when you run a rehab. Your job is to kind of never be friendly to people, to be honest <laughs> with you. But anyway, uh, he says to me, why do you want to be a monitor? And Janine, I swear to God, he is sitting there and he is waiting for the stock answer that every person gives him. And I always use Eddie Murphy's imitation of a white guy when I do this answer, right? It's because I want the best shot I can get at recovery. Right? <laughs> like every fucking kid that applies to be a monitor at the Plymouth House says, I want to be a monitor because I want the best shot I can get of licking this disease, right? But I told him, I'm like, look, man, I'm looking at 10 years in prison, okay? And if I do a month in your rehab, and you then hire me to work here for three days on a W-2. Here's your cell phone. Here's the keys to the company car. Go to town. You hire me to work here and then write me a letter stating that I'm fairly confident I can get my 10-year sentence knocked down to five years with the district attorney's office. Okay. I said, and if I'm here for three more months, my parents are going to be able to sleep well at night knowing I'm in a safe place. Okay. And this guy looked at me and he said, I think that you just told the truth for the first time in your life. And he was basically right. I had just told the truth for the first time in my life on an important matter, right? So he gives me the job as a monitor. And so I'm raking leaves and searching bags and making beds and doing laundry and witnessing fifth steps. And a bunch of the fifth steps I witnessed were for people who had the same thing that I chickened out on, oh, right? Okay. Well, now Brian's going to get better, but old Will isn't. And Joe's going to get better and Phil's going to get better. And all these, I witnessed for 10 people. And we would do this thing at the end of the day called wrap up. And they would say, how was your day? Good day. Goals met. The highlight of my day was playing basketball out back with Joe, 
right? And I started this thing where it was like, good day, well, good, because they would go around the room. They would ask 30 people, how was your day? And I would say, good day, goals met. The highlight of my day was watching a boy turn into a man in front of my very eyes. It was amazing. And I did that. That happened for me. Like I witnessed a dozen fist steps. I watched boys turn into men in a chapel in front of my eyes. It was a fucking miracle. Okay. But I was still sick with the secret. So we're having this group and the monitors had to sit in the front row at a group. And so this guy, Aaron, that runs the place, he's doing the group and you have to sit in the front row and pay attention because you're a, you're a model guest. Right. And he says, look, we all have it. Right. We all have a take it to the grave. It's what we call it. Take it to the grave. It's something we don't want to share in our fist. Step, okay. And you know, you can do one of two things with it. You can keep it. You can tell somebody and get better, or you can keep it to yourself and die. And then he looks right at me and he says, and frankly, I don't fucking care what you do with it. And I was like, you motherfucker. You fucker. Right? So I grabbed this like female priest that was in her seventies her name was Susan. And I pulled her aside and I told her my embarrassing sexual take it to the grave story. Okay. And she looked at me like, thanks. Well, you're the 279th person that's told me the exact same thing. <laughs> but at that moment, I got this feeling that everything was going to be okay. Okay. I didn't get the feeling of like, oh my God, I never want to shoot dope again. I never want to have another dirty vodka martini. No, I certainly didn't feel that way. But I just had this overwhelming feeling that I have now done all of this work to the best of my ability. Like, look, if you forget something from your fourth step, that's different. Okay. I was knowingly keeping a piece of my fourth step out. And now I had done this work to the best of my ability. And I had this feeling that everything was going to be okay. So you know what I did? I did a third step. I did a sixth step. I did a seventh step. And I was right there, man. I was like on the doorstep of my eighth step. And I was really... I really, really, really turned a corner with talking to Susan and telling her that secret. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So then I make my a step list. All right. And now it's time to go. So I come back to Portland and I went to Skip Murphy's Sober Living. And uh, I was pretty lucky. I still had a job working for a mortgage company. I had wheels. I have owned an apartment building. But I went to Sober Living because that was what I was told to do at the Plymouth House. And my staff contact said, Within 48 hours of you getting home, I want two amend stories. I want you to call me and give me the story of how you have made two of your first amends within 48 hours of you being back in Portland. I was like, oh, fuck. So Cumberland Farms is like this convenience store where obviously I stole Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwiches from them at two o'clock in the morning while I had a pocket full of money because my money was for Coke. <laughs> it wasn't for snacks. And so I got to make amends to this place and it's going to suck. I buy cigarettes and coffee and gas from these people all the time. I know them. It's going to be like wicked embarrassing. So I drive in and there's a, a van with uh, Jersey tags and there's a guy in there with his name embroidered on his shirt and come on farms. I've never seen him before. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. He's like some <laughs> regional manager. I, I can make amends to him and never see him again. Right. So Janine, I make like this textbook amend to this guy. My name is Will. I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I'm in this 12-step program of recovery. And we do this thing called amends where we set the universe right, right? Because let's, let's talk about amends for a second. An amend is not an apology, okay? If I steal from you in my using and I come to you and say, hey, I stole 50 bucks from you. I'm really sorry. You know, can you forgive me? That's like, I want your 50 bucks. And now I also want your forgiveness. Right? That is not how amends work. Amends are like, hey, I stole this 50 bucks and here it is. 
And while we're at it, why don't you let me know how else I fucked you over? Because I'm sure there's other things I can't even think of right now. And I'd really like to set the universe right because my addiction, selfishness, and dishonesty did this. And I need to put it back here. Okay. So I did a textbook amend to this guy and I handed him a hundred bucks. I said, I don't know. It was probably 50 to a hundred dollars worth of stuff I stole over the years. Here's a hundred bucks. And he says, well, this is amazing. I've never had an experience quite like this. And I, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. You're on a great path. And we, I, and we at Cumberland Farms really appreciate this. And here, we don't, we don't want your money. You keep the money. And I was like, dude, <laughs> I was like, I'm not taking that money. I don't care if you give it to the store. I don't care if you take your wife out to lunch with it, but I'm not taking that money. And then I threw up in my mouth oh my God. and then I followed it. <laughs> and then I got in my car and went to work. Okay. And when I got to work, my, I had amends to make to my boss. And my boss was in his wife's office with his wife and another coworker. The three of them were in her office. And I walked in the office and I said, hey, Brett, can we go in your office? I need to talk to you privately. And he said, sure. And then I said, you know what? Fuck that. Hang on a second. And I shut the door and I made amends to all three of them in front of each other for like some pretty specific, embarrassing stuff. And what I have found in my amends process is the more embarrassing uncomfortable, humiliating, or expensive an amend is, the more recovery I get from it. If I go into an easy amend that's like no big deal, I really don't get shit out of it. Yeah. Not that me getting anything is the point. I'm just saying. No, I know. You know, if there's an amend that like you got to pray about and you're not sure you should even do it and there might be legal ramifications and how am I going to get this guy with money? And it's going to be really, really hard. When I finally do that one, I get better. Wow. I'm glad that you're bringing that up because I feel like there's such a misconception that people have around, well, in general, around 12 step these days, but with the amends process, people are like, well, I don't want to go around and tell people I'm a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's like, we've even had people on the show say that that's going backwards. It's not moving forward, but it's the opposite of going backwards. It's releasing shame so that you can move forward. And what you just said is so true. And I have amends that I haven't done. I have a lot of amends that I haven't done or that I haven't done properly. I've got some that I have done, but some that I haven't done. And the ones that I've done, though, are how I started to release the shame around my past, you know? Sure. And I want people to understand that. I mean, a lot of this can really be seen as like, who am I looking in the mirror, right? Am I looking at somebody who's a piece of shit who I have no respect for in the mirror? Because if I am, I'll, why don't I just throw a needle in my arm while I'm at it, right? But if I like who I see in the mirror and I know I'm a good person and I know I'm helping people, that's a huge part of this, Right then I don't feel like I have to take a plastic bottle of the cheapest vodka on earth and like squeeze it as I pound it down my throat, yeah. right? Because I don't hate myself. Right. And amends are a huge part of that. And you get to kill two birds with one stone. You get to not be that piece of shit and you get to set the universe right. Here's your money back, right? And a lot of this doing the steps the way the founders laid it out did come from Don Pritz. Don Pritz screwed people over for money and he sent them Money orders, prison wages. Like I spent 40 hours mopping a floor. I made a dollar. Here it is. Yeah. Now I owe you $49. Yeah, these are, that's a serious amend, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and I made amends to an employer. This guy, I, I worked at his body shop. You know, I made amends to him one day and I said, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I owe you like 30 grand. And he's like, what do you mean you owe me 30 grand? I'm like, well, I worked for you for two years. You paid me like 40,000 a year. And I'm pretty sure I did like three quarters of the work I should have done because I was always drunk or hung over on the job. So I've calculated it and I owe you 30 grand. Well, this guy is like a serious blue collar millionaire. 
He owns like two dozen collision centers. He's the coolest guy in the world, salt of the earth, blue collar millionaire. And he's like, Willie, he's like, I'm not taking your money. And uh, no way. And I was like, well, Sean, I said, you know, you now have hundreds of employees. So here's a small stack of a dozen of my business cards. And when you run into pro- with employees with drug and alcohol problems, which you will, because you have hundreds of employees, right? Please have them call me and have them not hesitate. They're not wasting my time. They're not asking me for a favor. In fact, they're helping me. You just give them the card and say, this is what this guy does. It's totally free. Don't ask why. Please call him. And he has taken me up on that. And I have helped a bunch of his employees. In fact, he has a radio show and he invites me on his radio show. And we talk about (laughs) addiction and fentanyl and homelessness. And, and, you know, one thing that you mentioned about uh, amends is, is funny. So now I'm in home and I'm in this amends process, but I have to back up because while I was at the Plymouth house, I had my first experience with tent step because we're monitors now. And so clearly we're going to have like resentments and we're living in rehab. So like my third night being a monitor, I was going to do wrap up. So it's always a monitor that sits in like this head rocking chair in this barn with a gas fireplace and the list of all the guests and goes around and says, Jean, how was your day? My day was good. My goals were not met. The highlight of my day was the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, blah, 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 right? The next person. And it's a monitor that gets to do that. So it was my third day being a monitor and it was my it was my night to do wrap up and I was kind of looking forward to it, right? Well, there was this other guest and his name was Zach. I was 41. Zach was probably like 25. And Zach, this was his third time going through the Plymouth House. So he was what we called a C-teamer, okay? And he was a monitor with me. And he, that day, had been asked please leave the Plymouth house tomorrow because you obviously are having a hard time keeping your hands off of the female guests. So he's been asked to leave. So when we come home from that meeting that night and it's time to do wrap up, I'm heading towards the rocking chair with the notebook and Zach grabs the notebook out of my hand and says, I'm doing wrap up tonight because I'm leaving tomorrow. So he sits down and does wrap up and I'm like, this fucking jerk off, right? (laughs) So afterwards, it's time for meds. And this lady, Alice, is handing out meds. And I said, Alice, can I talk to you in the back office for a minute. And she was like, 10 step inventory. And I said, yeah, how did you know? And she said, I saw the whole thing. Will come with me. (laughs) So I go in the back. She saw Zach grab the notebook. She saw the whole thing. She knew exactly what I was going to ask her. And she sits me down and gives me 10th step inventory instructions. Okay. So I start writing, you know what 10 step inventory is, right? So I start, I mean, I'm going, I'm by the book. So I'm writing Zach, what he did, my part, I'm writing also. I get about halfway through this piece of inventory and I said to Alice, hey, do I have to talk to this asshole when I'm done with this piece of inventory? (laughs) And she said, well, how would you know that, Will? You're not done with the piece of inventory yet. Finish the piece of inventory. So I finished it. And the last piece of a 10-step inventory is what is my mistake in thinking, right? And my mistake in thinking is at 42 years old, I can't change the behavior of a 26-year-old B-teamer, C-teamer, who can't keep his hands off the female guests. Right. This fucking punk. Right. right? It was like, and my resentment to what had happened an hour earlier vanished. Vanished like a miracle. I had really never in my life experienced something so powerful as far as like, wow, like I'm not going to ever waste another second of my life being mad at a kid that doesn't even know I'm mad at him right? because of this little tool that was given to me by AA. It was amazing. It was 10 step inventory is life changing. Yeah. 
it's really the only reason I even have a sponsor today yeah. is because, you know, when I finally asked my, my grand sponsor to sponsor me, he was like, well, what is sponsoring you going to look like? And I was like, I'm going to call you every three weeks. I need 20 minutes of your time to read you some dead step inventory. He's like, all right, let's try it. Right. So it's been amazing. 11 step prayer meditation, nightly review. I, I do it. I don't do enough of it, enough of it. I was taught once that like sometimes even just going to the bathroom can be a reminder of you need to pray. And a great prayer that I do sounds like this. God, please show me that you love me. That's it. And I say that prayer, you know, it's easy. I do it. And then 12 step. So 12 step is huge. It's everything. I've sponsored some guys. I sponsor a guy now. I haven't had really much luck sponsoring at all. I don't know that I'm responsible for anybody getting sober, to be honest with you. But, you know, Bill Wilson said to his wife one time, Lois, you know, I've been trying to help all these men. And, you know, one by one, they have come into our house. They have disrespected our home. They have disrespected you. They have assaulted me and you. They have stolen from us. And one by one, they've gone out and gotten drunk. And you know what she said? Yeah, but you haven't, right? And that's the power. So I'm sponsoring this kid, Steve, at the time. I'm pretty newly sober. I'm sober like six months. I'm sponsoring Steve. And Steve is um, profoundly lazy, completely uh, incapable of any kind of honesty. And he's working on his four-step. So he calls me one day and he's like, hey, Will, I've made some really good progress on my fourth column and I want to show it to you. And, oh, I have a great idea. Why don't you pick me up from work tomorrow? And I got a new job. And why don't you pick me up from work and I'll show you the work I've done. Well, his new job is like way the fuck out on the Gorham Westbrook line. And I know this kid just wants to ride over. Right. I know he hasn't done <laughs> shit. On I mean, come on, guy. Like I'm a, I'm a street drug addict. Like you're not going to hustle me, right? But I'm like, I'll bite. You know, I'll pick him up. I'll, I'll do the kid a favor. So I pick him up and I said, where's your notebook? And he said, well, it's back at Serenity House. This was a halfway house he was living in. I said, oh, I used to go to Serenity House. I've been through there twice. Actually, the feds yanked me out of there one time. So we go to Serenity House, and he runs upstairs to get his notebook. And my buddy Tony just happens to be working at the desk at Serenity House. And I said, hey, Tony, watch this. This should be funny. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, just watch. This is going to be good. And Steve comes to the platform at the top of the stairs and shouts out, I got to start my whole four step all over again. <laughs> I'm like, why? What, what's the matter? He's like, my roommate's been kicked out. And he took my notebooks. Right. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, Steve, what you should really do is check the local pawn shops. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, when people steal shit from you at a sober house, go check the local pawn shops. Right? That's probably where your fourth step is, right? And I was just kind of <laughs> sort of snide and like, you know, just like sarcastic with it. Right, you know? right. So then I started talking shit about him behind his back, like with this like dog ate my homework story. And finally, it comes full circle and he comes back to me like a, three weeks later. And he's like, well, why are you, why are people coming up to me telling me that you're talking shit about me behind my back with this dog ate my homework? So I'm like, because Steve, it's true. And if you can't fucking tell your sponsor the truth that you just needed to ride home from work and you hadn't actually done anything on your first step, I'm never going to be able to help you get better. I need you to be honest with me as a first step. Don't you want to get better? And he like started to cry. Right. And he was like, yes, I do. And I did lie to you and I'm sorry. And it was a sort of a pivotal moment for him. But the reason I'm sharing it with you is very significant. Okay. I had at the time an ex-girlfriend that I owed amends to. We had been together for like three years. Plus she had stuck with me for a year and a half while I was in federal prison. She's a local realtor. I'm a lender. She had asked me if I wanted to try the relationship again shortly after getting out of Plymouth House, and I declined because I didn't know if I was going to stay sober, and I didn't want her to deal with 
two more years of Will the Junkie, right? So I declined. And she was on my A-step. And I knew that I owed her amends for never being where I said I was, never being with who I said I was, shooting dope when I said I wasn't, having 15 vodka drinks when I said I had three beers. I mean, this list goes on and on and on of what I owed her amends for, okay? Well, she had met somebody and gotten engaged to them. And I had asked around, what what is the story with this guy? And like one by one, people are like, oh my God, he's amazing. He's hardworking, honest, blue collar, Catholic, Italian. He's just like her, like they're a great couple. And I was happy for her, right? And through this experience I had with Steve, with his fourth step lie to me, I realized that it was not going to be productive of me to make specific amends to my ex-girlfriend because of all this shit I had done where she was happy and engaged to a new guy that was a prospective, really good husband for her. Okay. What I owed her, Janine, was I owed her amends for lying right to her fucking face over and over and over again when all she ever wanted to do was love and help me. And I got that from Steve, right? Because Steve lied to my face when all I ever wanted to do was love and help him. So I learned this from a sponsee and I was able to turn around and have a very powerful and meaning amends with this woman who I'm still friends with. We're still in the same business. I see her. We have a great relationship, friendly anyway, as acquaintances. But I don't know that that would be the case if I had drug up every fucking time I was a shitty boyfriend, you know? Yeah. So that was powerful. I do have one question, which is because this is something that happened with me. So I would stop doing drugs briefly, but I never quit drinking. And then later it was a way for me to say that I didn't actually have a problem because I quit doing drugs all those times. I quit doing drugs all those times. And I was doing a step one in a detox, same thing. And they had me look at like a timeline. And I realized, because I kept saying, I've only been doing heroin for 10 months. I don't really have a problem. It's only been 10 months. It's only been 10 months. But I'd been drinking and doing Coke for 15 fucking years. And when I did that timeline, that's the only time I realized I was like, I haven't gone a day without a drink since I was 21. That's what's actually true. And I allowed that. So, I mean, did you do that? Would, Would you look back and be like, no, I quit doing heroin. I obviously don't have a problem. You know, I mean, yes and no. I would say no to did I use as an excuse but I would say yes to that. I absolutely did do that. Right. I mean, I came back from Salt Lake City where I was shooting drugs all day, every day, and just stopped. Yeah. And pounded drinks at the bar and smoked Kind Bud for like years. Yeah. Until like oxys came on the scene. And then I started snorting those and those led me back to the needle. Like, like I can't really explain it. Obviously, it's substituting one for another. Right. But- when I first came back, like I, like Portland, Maine is not really a place to be copping drugs. If you had a $100 a day St. Louis, Missouri dope habit or New York City dope habit or LA dope habit, 100 a day, that's 700 a day in Portland, Maine. Right. Yeah. At least. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, I came back and like was on the hunt for drugs, but then, then come to find out an hour and a half south of here is Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is like the heroin capital of the country. So what does your life look like today? So you've been sober since October of 2011? I have. Yep. Okay. I've been completely sober. I was a mortgage lender. I quit painting cars in 2004 and became a mortgage broker. Then we all sort of turned into mortgage lenders when I got out of prison. I did a deal for my god sister in Jacksonville, Florida, a big mortgage. And I had a $10,000 check coming to me and my boss handed me $2,700. And that was my last day. Quit my job. Started a franchise of my own, my own franchise of a mortgage company out of Michigan, 
I had like an eight year relationship with them and ended it because there was uh, some dishonesty on their part around finances. So I found a new mortgage lender that I've now been with for like three and a half years. They're in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They're wonderful. My boss is my best friend. My underwriters and processors are Facebook buddies of mine. They're the best in the business. I am the luckiest mortgage branch manager on the face of the earth. I have two seasoned veterans as employees that work for me and two rookies as employees that work for me. We have the lowest corporate margins, the best rates, the best support, and the friendliest people, which is what I'm all about. So I've got this mortgage company. We crush it. Now, six months ago, more, the mortgage business came to a screeching halt. But all during the pandemic, we made, I have a $1,000 an hour job. And I do it in flip-flops and a Grateful Dead shirt from my computer or phone, wherever the fuck I am. Okay. I have a like seven rental units. I have multis in Portland. I have a two unit farm on six acres in Buxton. Buxton, Maine is where the piece of volcanic glass with the money hidden under it was in the stone wall in the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a farmhouse out there. I have a hard money lending practice where I keep like a couple million bucks of my own money on the street to house flippers. I do the landlording. I plow driveways. I power wash fences. I buy rusted cars that won't take inspection stickers and I do rust repair on them and sell them because I was a body man. I did auto body work and my job in mortgages is very stressful. So when I close my laptop and I start grinding out rust and welding stuff, it's a great stress reliever for me. Yeah. So I'll buy a car for five, six, 700 bucks and then I'll put it out there on Facebook to newly sober people, a lot of times single moms. Yeah. And I'll offer that car for 2,500 bucks and if someone doesn't buy it, then I'll put it on uh, Craigslist for thirty seven hundred bucks. Yeah. You know, another thing I've done, which I think is really, which I'm kind of proud of, is uh, I bought a two unit in 2017 in a short sale, and it came with a 19,000 square foot commercial lot next door that was a tow yard. I put it out on Facebook, like, "Hey, does anyone want to clear this lot in exchange for being able to like use it for anything, growing food?" And a friend tagged a friend. We started the Portland Recovery Community Garden. The Portland Recovery Community Garden is a 19,000 square foot commercial lot that's been turned into a garden. There's like 20, 12 foot beds. I cistern uh, 600 gallons of water off my roof. I've never bought a drop of water from the city of Portland. And we grow mad food. I grow cucumbers and zucchinis and squash and eggplant and broccoli and cauliflower. And we, I bring it to sober houses. And honestly, I bring it to women. Because when I bring a box, a cardboard box full of fresh vegetables to a man's sober house, it sits on yeah. the counter and rots yeah. while they order pizza. Okay, right. And yeah. women are like, oh, zucchinis. And they grab it like right in front of me and eat it. So yeah. the, the idea was to get people out in the fresh air and learn about horticulture and permaculture. But it's so hit or miss. Whenever you're dealing with helping people get out of a sober house environment like I hire guys from sober houses a lot to help me with like some landscaping or some weeding. And it's really hit or miss. Some guys come out and they'll do the work of two men and other guys will just like stand around and smoke butts. It's, right. it's tough. So yeah. the community garden, you can find us on Facebook. It's the Portland recovery community garden. And uh, it's usually just me, <laughs> but it's a massive stress reducer for me. Like I said, mortgage loans get stressful. I close my laptop. I go out there. I plant stuff. I weed, I water. I love it. And one other thing I'd like to share. We hear this all the time in the rooms, okay? The first time I tried to get sober, I did it for my girlfriend. And the second time I tried to get sober, I did it for my mom. And the third time I tried to get sober, I did it for my probation officer, right? And here comes Eddie Murphy's imitation of a white guy, right? And this time I'm finally doing it for me, right? This time around, I'm finally doing it for me. I cannot fucking tell you how many times I've heard this, okay? 
And this does not apply to me. Okay. Because the first time I tried to get sober for my girlfriend, it was because I wanted her back. That's for me, not for her. Okay. And when I try to get sober for my mom, I'm pretty sure it's because I need her to let me in the house and do my laundry and pay my cell phone bill. Okay. And when I try to get sober for my probation officer, it's because the food in jail sucks. Okay. So my story is I tried to get sober for me, for me, for me, for me, for me. And this time I'm finally doing it for my family because people ask me, well, what was the last straw? One of the first things you asked me today, Janine, was what made you want to get sober? And the reason was I couldn't look at my loved ones anymore and see that pain that I was causing them. That was it. If it wasn't for my family, I would be dead or living on the streets. I would have gone to the bitter ends of existence like the book talks about. I couldn't see that look on my sister's face, my mother's face, my dad's face. So when I go to the store and I reach into my pocket for a lot of money and a gum wrapper falls out and lands on the ground, and blows all the way across the parking lot and comes to rest surrounded by 500 other gum wrappers just like it, I go and pick mine up for my mom, okay? And when Steve calls, who's never told me the truth, never done anything I asked him to, and the the phone lights up and there's a red button and and a green button, and it's 629, and all I want to do is watch the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell. I'm already on the fucking couch. I want to hit that red button on Steve so fucking bad, right? Because he's just going to give me some bullshit story about why he hasn't done any work on his four-step and why he needs a fucking ride. Right? I want to hit the green button so bad. I want to hit the red button so bad. I hit the green button for my dad or my brother or my sister. When I want to lie about something, I tell the truth. I do it for my family. People can say, oh, you're crazy. That means that when you lose your family, you're going to go right back to drugs. I've been sober for like 11 and a half years. I'm pretty sure that's not the case, but you never know. I love that. I actually agree with that. My sponsor says the same thing. She's like, you can get sober for somebody else. It'll work, actually, because it's your love for them. She says the exact same thing. She got sober for her daughter, and that gave her a foundation that she now has leveraged into longer periods of time. You know. So the book talks about this thing called restless, irritable, and discontent, right? We're restless, irritable, and discontent until we can find relief from drinks, uh, taking a few drinks, drinks which we see others having with impunity. So restless, irritable, and discontent are three things that drug addicts and alcoholics experience, okay? And we have tools to help us with these things, okay? So the first one is restless. It's sort of like the feeling that, look, it's like anxiety, right? It's the feeling like I've had too much coffee, basically. And the way to fix that is with prayer and meditation. Meditation is unbelievably useful. So when I was taught how to do it, I was taught Vipassana meditation. You basically just sit there and you focus on your breath and you try to keep your mind empty. People think it's zoning out. It's not. Meditation is work. Okay. So when you try to think of nothing and your mind goes to something, which takes you to something else, which takes you to something else. And then you get this fucking freight train. Like when we used to snort Ritalin in college so we can stay up and write papers, right? You go, whoa, well, back to the breath empty your mind. You don't beat yourself up about the six minutes you just wasted. You just try again. And this centers me. And that's, this gets rid of my restlessness. Okay. The second one is irritability. So irritability is if you live in a sober house and your job is to clean the second floor bathroom and you clean the whole bathroom and then Tony goes in there and shaves his fucking junk in the sink. (laughs) And right after you've cleaned it, right, that's irritable. You're going to get irritable, okay? Or whatever it could be. A coworker messes something up or you get irritable. Tony goes up and messes up the bathroom. The solution to that is inventory. Like I talked about earlier, right? You write this piece of 10-step inventory and this irritableness goes away. 
Okay. And then there's the big one, discontent. Okay. Discontent is Facebook. Okay. So when you're on Facebook and everyone's life is great and yours sucks, <laughs> right? You get discontent. Now you and I probably know that the better you make your life look on Facebook, the more it probably sucks. <laughs> People who really don't put how awesome their life is on Facebook really tend to have the better lives. But somebody who's brand new in recovery doesn't know this. Okay. So right. they're in Skip Murphy's sober living and they see their high school buddy who's like, heli skiing in fucking Aspen. And they're like, holy shit, my life sucks. And this is what happened to me. So I was seven months sober and I'm in my office. And I mean, I'm in an office where like, I'm making six figures. I'm, I'm doing okay. But there's this kid I went to high school with, and I'm not going to say his name. I'm, I'll just call him Joe. Okay. And Joe runs PepsiCo China, Shanghai. So this guy is in charge of Pepsi for half of the planet. Right? It's like <laughs> a massive job. Okay. And he has a picture of himself and he's in Banff, British Columbia. And he's jumping out of a helicopter with a snowboard under his arm into like tit deep virgin powder with his trophy wife, <laughs> heli snowboarding in Banff. And I'm in Portland, Maine. And I live at Skip Murphy's Sober Living. And I have to be home by 7 o'clock tonight for group or I'm going to get fucking grounded. Okay. And I'm like, my life sucks compared to this. And I'm just looking at, at it. And I'm feeling this discontentedness. And all of a sudden, my phone rings. And it's my ex-girlfriend, the one that I made that very powerful amends to. And she says, hey, Will, I have a favor to ask you. Remember Tommy? You tried to help him like six months ago. He had the uh, over-the-counter cough medicine addiction. I'm like, yeah, I remember Tommy. She's like, well, Tommy's not doing very well, and I really need you to try to help him. Can you please help him? He's down near the uh, Preble Street Resource Center, and he should be easy to find. He has a big pink cast on his arm because he broke his arm. Can you please go find him and just buy him lunch or coffee, talk to him, try to help him in any way you can? I'm like, fucking right, I can. Right? So I jump in my car. I go down to Preble Street. Sure enough, there's this dude in a big pink cast. Tommy, it's Will. Remember me? Hey, jump in. He gets in the car. It's cold. It was wintertime. So I bring him back to my office and I get us some sandwiches and a coffee. And we're sitting in my office talking. And I'm like, Tommy, you're, like, you're all fucked up on this cough medicine. You're living on the streets. Like, we got to get you some help. What do you want to do? And he was like, I don't know. I mean, I was like, do you want to go to detox? He's like, I'd love to go to detox. So I start calling detoxes. Okay. And Janine, like one after another, a dozen detoxes. We're like, do not get in your car and bring that fucking kid here. Okay. Oh, we, we cannot handle over-the-counter cough medicine addicts. We're not equipped for that. Don't come here with him. One after another. Shot down. Shot down. So I'm going on like three hours with this fucking kid. Finally, I call this number, 774-HELP. It's Ingram Services. And they're like, why don't you take him over to Spring Harbor, which is this mental hospital? And I mentioned it to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've been to Spring Harbor like five times. I'm, I'm very comfortable there. They detox me. I love the people there. And I was like, oh, dude, let's bring you over there. <laughs> and he's like, okay. So I walk him. Ingraham Services is literally across the street from my office. Three hours of calling detoxes. And here's the solution. It's I can see it from my office window, right? So I walk him over there. I leave him in the care of the people who are going to put him on like a little jitney bus and bring him to Spring Harbor. And I'm leaving and I'm walking through the snow and I'm thinking, wow, you know, he's going to be in a warm, safe place for like the next five days. Okay. And his mom and dad are going to sleep well for the next week, knowing that he's in a safe, warm place in a detox. And I'm feeling pretty fucking good about this. And I get back to my office 
And I sit at my desk where I had had these sandwiches and this coffee with Tommy. And I open up my laptop and there's Joe with his trophy wife jumping out of his helicopter. And all of a sudden it dawns on me. Joe doesn't have shit on me, right? Chances are slim to none that Joe has ever done anything so profound as the help I just gave this guy and his fucking parents. Okay. And that is the key to discontent is being of service to others and helping people get this thing that we have been so fortunate to stumble into in my case. That's so cool. So restless, irritable, discontent. Restless was the meditation and prayer. Irritable was the inventory. Discontent was service. 10 step is go help somebody. And you know what? Don't fucking blow it by bragging about it on Facebook. Because once you do that, <laughs> altruism, there's there's two parts to altruism, right? The first part is helping people. The second part is keeping it to yourself. Yeah. I see it all the time. Oh, there was this lady in front of me at Walmart. She was $7 short, so I paid it. It's like, you're so cool, yeah, Phil. Yeah. I'm glad you put that on Facebook. How about just go helping somebody and shutting up about it, right? Like I get a... 30-ish year old drug addict comes to me with a story, needs a bus ticket somewhere, needs 20 bucks. I'm like, I can't, I can't help you. I'm not going to lie because I'm a recovered alcoholic. I can't lie. So I'm not going to say I don't have any money because I do. I have $2,500 in my pocket, right? So I learned this is this term in prison, which is, it sounds like this. He got a cigarette and I go, I don't have them like that. <laughs> so basically it's like yeah i have some but not enough to just like yeah I don't, hey you got a few bucks yeah i don't have it like that I just it's great to think about it it's a, totally i don't got it like that though. It's a great line, <laughs> right yeah. but you know on the next block there might be a guy that's like 50 and he looks like he's like 70 and he's shuffling along like with a shit in his jeans you know and he asks me for 50 cents because he wants a beer like i'm gonna give that guy a couple bucks he's better off with a beer he really is better off with a beer, Yeah, you know, and then I'm not going to tell anybody about it. So helping this kid, getting him into detox and then not bragging about it with people. I mean, it's a miracle. It, it says it right in the book, right? Working with others often saves the day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's been powerful for me. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really appreciate you sitting down with us. I appreciate you reaching out and sitting down. 